Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History's London Week. So we've had, um, on Monday, we had a tour around Roman London. Yesterday, we were looking at uh, two London places. And today, Dominic, we are looking at two figures who have lived in London, who are yes. a part of the fabric of London's history. Um, and you are kicking us off, aren't you? So who have you chosen? Well, the thing about Londoners, Tom, is that most Londoners, or lots of Londoners, weren't born in London, were they? Is your Londoner? I don't want you to give away who your Londoner no, is. my Londoner was definitely not born in London. Wasn't even born in Britain, Dominic. Well, that's exciting. That is tantalising. Mm. So my London figure uh, was actually born in Somerset, in a place called Sharpham. I don't know where Sharpham is. Have you been to Sharpham, Somerset? No, I if I have, I don't remember it. Very small village. Um, and he was born in 1707, and his name is Henry Fielding. So he uh, is the son of um, an officer, a military officer called Colonel Edmund Fielding, who had fought under the Duke of Marlborough in the wars of the Spanish succession and so on. And um, Henry, it's a quite a well-off family. Uh, Henry grows up in Somerset. Uh, disaster strikes when he is 11. His mother dies. And his father, Edmund, the military officer, the military man, is generally regarded as, a, as feckless. He's charming but feckless. So extraordinarily, his, Henry's grandmother sues his father for custody. <laughs> After the death of, after the death of Henry's mum, and the grandmother wins, and uh, Henry is taken away from his father and given to his grandmother, who sends him to Eton. Yes. So, so that's what happens to young Henry. And at Eton, he becomes best friends or great pals with the future Pitt the Elder, uh, which is nice. So, so he's, he, going, he's going up in the world. He's well. I mean, he doesn't know that Pitt the Elder is going to be Pitt the Elder. He just thinks of him as uh, William, just some. Billy Pitt or something, who loves the war game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and his you know, tails. Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. having a tremendous time talking yeah. about Latin and um, playing obscure sports. Anyway, um, Henry Fielding's life takes an unexpected turn when he is about 18. He's obviously a sort of rumbustious young man. He has become infatuated with his cousin, who's called Sarah. And uh, one day, when she's on her way to church, he tries to kidnap her and run off with her. And... Sarah's family are outraged by this behaviour, so Henry has to flee abroad for a time um, to escape prosecution. So that sort of tells you something a bit about his personality. So to give you a sense of um, of him, Tom, he is a, he's a huge man. He's more than six feet tall, which is very tall by the standards of the early 18th century. Um, one of his friends says, quote, he was not a handsome man. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, you can draw your own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, he's said to have joked with his friends about his nose and his chin. So, um, what was the joke? I think the joke was they were quite large. They're over large. Um, but he's a very warm and sociable sort of man. Well, he's a very funny man as well, isn't he? Yeah. One of his friends said of him, he had more wit and humor than Swift, Pope and the other wits of his time put together. Because did he end up writing, um, a very famous novel that then became He did. A I'm going to come to that. Because he's a man of great appetites and passions. So he loves food. He loves drink. He loves snuff. He's a great snuff addict. Um, and he loves and he and he loves the pleasure the pleasures of the bedroom. So he's lusty. 
He's a lusty 18th century fellow. And he starts off, he decides he wants to be a writer. Um, so he comes to London, sort of hanging around London with other wits and coffee house people and stuff. Grub Street. Exactly. He writes plays which satirize Walpole, who's the first prime minister. The sort of Jonathan big, Wilde, isn't it? Is that big, right? Exactly. The yeah. big cheese of the day. So Jonathan Wilde is about a, a thief taker, isn't it? Um, and and uh, Jonathan Wilde is a kind of metaphor for Walpole in this. So his plays are sort of censored and he's slightly frowned upon. Uh, he ends up, well, he moves into books because he writes, the big book of the day um, is a book called Pamela, a uh, sort of epistolary novel, mm-hmm. one of the first, if not the first, um, novels in English. And uh, Samuel Richardson. Samuel Richardson. And it's very improving, um, sort of morally serious kind of book, as all Richardson's books are. Um, so Henry Fielding writes a spoof of it, a parody called Shamala. And that's very successful. So he writes more books. So he does one about supposedly her cousin, doesn't he? Joseph, Joseph Andrews. Andrews. Yeah, exactly. And then at the end, so that's in the 1740s, and then the end of the, de- the decade ends with him writing his masterpiece, uh, Tom Jones. So Tom Jones is, for people who don't know, that is a book that everybody should read. An absolutely uproarious, rumbustious, really fun book, brilliantly written, sort of picaresque. Tom Jones has all these adventures across Who's the, the country. Who's the squire? Who's very Squire like Weston. You. Squire Weston. Very like you. Like me. Yeah, kind of grumpy, miserable. Yeah, but he's a kind of honest man, lives in the country, yeah. has no time for London. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> writes so columns for the Daily Mail, all that kind I, of stuff. I, I thought of myself as Tom Jones in that. In I'm that afraid analogy, not, but... Dominic. I'm afraid <laughs> not. And then th- th- there's a sinister schoolmaster, isn't there, called Thwackham? That's it, exactly, yes. There, I think it is Mr. Thwackham, isn't it? Tom Jones is always, he basically travels across the country, falling in and out of people's beds, yeah. leaping out of the windows of inns. Um, Eating oranges yeah, in a lascivious way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this was made into a film in the 1960s, 1963, I think, with Albert Finney. Absolutely tremendous sort of 60s film. Very, I mean, lo- looks quite dated now because it has, uses all sort of 60s gimmicks and quirks. Color but, and, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, he goes into the law, so he's involved with the law, and he's um, and this comes about because he's a fanatical anti-Jacobite. So he's he's a very sort of staunch Anglican, um, supporting the Hanoverians. Supporting the Hanoverians. So when you have the forty-five, the sort of Bonnie Prince, Bonnie Prince Charlie uprising, he writes loads of stuff for the government saying Bonnie Prince Charlie's a terrible fellow. Hurrah for the Hanoverians! All this. And um, as a result of this, he is appointed as basically London's chief magistrate. And this is really his claim to fame, um, specifically as a Londoner. Because London in the 18th century has expanded colossally. Um, So loads of sort of what were previously sort of the rural fringes of London have been filled in and are now absolutely teeming with people, with crime, with poverty. So places like Covent Garden is the sort of classic mm-hmm. example. Um, and Gin actually, Lane is the, the Hogarth Yeah, so the Gin Lane, if you think yeah. of Hogarth's cartoons, are sort of people falling out of windows and, you know... Dropping their babies down. Babies, exactly, on the streets. The sort of fear of the London mob and all of yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, so, so this is partly what Fielding's job is to kind of to deal with. And one reason that it's been very difficult to deal with is is London obviously has no police force. So it basically has a system of volunteer constables who are completely useless. Um, but it also has a system of, you mentioned Jonathan Wilde, of thief takers. So the thief takers are utterly corrupt. 
Um, they basically will solve, if you're the victim of petty crime, the thief takers will solve it for a fee. Um, so you pay them basically to like bounty hunters. They are exactly, but they're in league often. I mean, often some of the big thief takers, I mean, they're actually the heads of criminal gangs themselves. Yeah. So they're basically profits in every conceivable way. They rob you and then they charge you to get your stuff back. It's, it's intensely corrupt. Yeah. Uh, so Henry Fielding, he, his office, the magistrate's court, he's become the chief magistrate and his office is in Bow Street at number four Bow Street, which is in the Bedford estate near Covent Garden. So this is quite a notorious red light district in the mid 18th century. He's in the heart of it and he wants to, um, he, he wants to sort of sort it out. Now he's very forward thinking because at the beginning of the 1750s, he writes a, a sort of blueprint called a proposal for making an effectual provision for the poor. And he says, basically, what we should do is we should get thousands of poor Londoners. We should build a massive workhouse for them. And that sounds grim, but but wait for it, in which we'll they'll be decently housed. We'll teach them a trade. Um, they'll get wages. They'll pay them a little bit as they learn the trade. And they'll be, you know, have lessons and they'll have religious services and all this stuff. And they'll basically be rehabilitated. And then we'll turn them out of the workhouse as useful citizens. So it's basically a sort of Scandinavian prison. <laughs> um and um and obviously nobody listens people think it's absolutely demented so um, kind of woke tosh woke tosh so he yeah. he's that's ignored but what is not ignored is his idea for p- police so he has this idea of employing instead of people employing kind of private thief takers he as the magistrate will employ a team of six highly skilled trained men crack men who will uh, work for him, he will send them out to raid uh, robbers and highwaymen, to raid gaming houses, um, to sort of charge off and, and, and apprehend villains and get back people's property. Um, so the six of them at first, they are each given um, handcuffs, a pistol and a stick. They are given a guinea a week. And basically, if they catch criminals, they get commission on top of that. And they're answerable to him. Does that not fir- encourage them to... You know, fabricate evidence, say, or... No, they're absolutely unimpeachable. They're, uh, that's, that that okay. is woke tosh right. from you. That's shocking. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry um, to cast this question on the Bay Street Rummers. Yeah, why do you hate Britain, Tom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, I mean, I mean, maybe it does. I haven't come across it, but maybe um, if there are Bow Street Runners aficionados out there who know Bow street runner truthers <laughs> yes exactly so there's only six of them but this is a tremendous innovation i mean i know six doesn't sound like many but it, it does expand over time and what's the population of london at this point about a million yeah so i mean how many do you need <laughs> <laughs> so it's well, kind of like marvel comics well within within 50 years or so tom there are 68 of them i mean oh, come probably. on yeah i mean that's loads so what's the difference between them and and what peel does that's a very good question. I think they're just much less they're much less regulated. They're quite informal. They're answerable to the magistrate. And they don't wear those kind of blue top hats. They don't have any uniform at first. They wear their own clothes. So yeah. they're plain clothes. Um but the other thing that's really interesting um is that uh his brother, so he has a he has a brother called John. And John was blinded at the age of 19 in a naval in a, in a naval accident, the details of which he never divulged to the public. Mm. So he's been blinded mysteriously on a ship. We don't know why. And John has the idea. He says, why don't we um, issue a sort of gazette, a police gazette, that will have descriptions of criminals? And this is the first time 
they do it. So they basically send out, you know, wanted Tom Holland looks <laughs> wearing like, a wig. Right. <laughs> you can't miss him. Yeah. All 18 century <laughs> men look the same. So, yeah. <laughs> so do you want to know what this was called? It was called the Quarterly Pursuit, the name of this gazette. But they decided that was a terrible name. So they renamed it. I think, um, I don't know whether this is a worse name or a better name. They renamed it the Public Hue and Cry. That's a great name. So, so the Public Hue and Cry, you would buy that. It would have all the details about. The latest thefts, horrible murders, horrible murders, wanted suspects, highwaymen. Yeah. So, um, do you know how come no one has made a, a kind of um, a rollicking series? You shouldn't have given it away, Tom, because we now can't. Yeah, we can. We, we can. Do you think? Yes, we could do the rest is history productions. Yeah. So, if you're listening, if you're some sort of TV producer with horrible glasses. Let me- <laughs> They don't have to wear horrible glasses. But they do, though. They do. No, they don't. We both know that they do. No, I think think you're showing your age. I don't think they wear horrible glasses anymore. Don't they? No, you've been stuck in in the Cotswolds too long. What do they wear? They don't wear glasses. They wear contact lenses. Uh, I think, I don't think. think Whatever. whatever. What what Dominic is saying is that... It's ours. We own this. We own this franchise. If you are listening and you're maybe working for Netflix, you've got an enormous amount of cash and you would like to commission us to produce the yeah. public hue and cry, a scintillating tale of crime and detection in 18th century London. Y- you know, you can, you can just email us or something. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Tom. I'm, I'm going to give away the end of season one. So at the end of season one, so Henry Fielding, who's been the star of the first season, you know, there's been a few flashbacks to him trying to kidnap the heiress, to him being witty, <laughs> to, yeah. to his early life. Sometimes he talks about Tom Jones in kind of, you know, the more reflective scenes. Uh, but towards the end of season one, tragically, as we reach the early 1750s, so he hasn't actually been magistrate that long, but the Bow Street Runners are dashing, you know, all six of them <laughs> around, the, <laughs> around the metropolis. Henry Fielding gets dropsy. Oh, this no. is awful. So dropsy is a sort of apparently a cirrhosis of the liver. Um, according to the Oxford Dictionary of uh, National Biography, it says uh, his skin was jaundiced, his body emaciated, his abdomen grotesquely bloated with water that had to be tapped at frequent intervals. So I think we're Netflix. That'd be a shocking, to, de- shocking development. It would be. A but it would provide great scope for a, a good actor. A very good actor. Yeah, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. <laughs> yes. Um, He'd look good with Dropsy. He would. So he'd act, he'd act it well. So do you know what he does when he gets Dropsy and he knows that the game is up? He doesn't get cured. He doesn't get cured. I'm giving away the end. Oh, he goes. To, he goes to Portugal, doesn't he? He does. He goes to Portugal. So the final scenes. There's, there's location filming involved. So that's the Christmas special. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, yeah. So he ends up in Portugal and he dies in Lisbon in 1754. And he's buried. He's buried there in the um, English cemetery in Lisbon. So a, a later, I mean, this probably won't be in the Netflix series. In, in a King's Lemis novel, um, the plot slightly revolves around the fact that. The character, a thinly veiled version of Kingsley Amos, has been invited to Lisbon to, to deliver some sort of Henry Fielding lecture. But in season two, Tom, uh, we move to uh, John Fielding, his brother, who you may remember. The blind one. Yes, be- whose nickname is the Blind Beak. <laughs> and, and he, <laughs> the series writes itself. <laughs> and and he, he has a superpower. He, um, he's also a tremendous man. He founds an orphan for uh, an orphan. He founds an <laughs> asylum for orphan girls in Lambeth. In your neck of the woods, South London. Yeah. And he ends up being knighted for it. So he's an absolutely tremendous fellow. But his power is that, although he's blind, 
he can recognize <laughs> he can recognize three thousand criminals by the sound <laughs> by the sound of their voice by the sound of their voices. <laughs> that, yeah. That's amazing. That is a superpower. Because in see, in my mind, rather like eighteenth century Londoners all looking the same, they, they all sound talk. the same. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Well, how do they sound? How do you think they sound? Oh, Mr. Oh, no, that's so cool. <laughs> oh, Mr. Fielding. Uh, I, I don't know. How does that? How does? God bless you. That's Victorian. A Bow Street runner. Oh, the runners are after me, Tom. The, the Bow Street runners. Hue and cry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is this is going to be a great series. So, series season one is Public Hue and Cry, and then the um, the series season two is The Blind Beak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's. that's I think. I think future it. series. Well, there's two seasons in it, definitely. Yeah, there's Henry Fielding. Then there's the Blind Beak. I think. I don't know. Do we? We well, need we to don't have to be chained to what actually happened. No, I, I mean, mean it's maybe... kind of Peaky Blinders, wasn't was it? Exactly. So I think by the time you get to season three, it's a generational change. Charles James Fox is maybe a character because he'd be solving crimes with with Pitt the Younger. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, the 18th century is really, it's, it's absent from our, from our screen. Dr. Johnson is solving. Dr. Johnson well, solving crimes. You know what it is, Tom? We've had a previous episode about Dr. Johnson um, dealing with ghosts. Yes. Remember? It's, it's, so, so he's, yeah, so he's ghost busting. <laughs> ghost busting. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. Johnson and Boswell are ghost busting. I mean, there's so much to play there's with. So here. much to play with. It's unbelievable. There. We haven't had an offer. So I, so, so, so TV producers, please don't be offended by, Dominic characterizing you as wearing ludicrous glasses. Scrub that. Focus on the, the gold that is this rich scene of historical <laughs> You make material. this series, you can buy enough glasses to last you a lifetime. <laughs> okay. That's brilliant, Dominic. Great choice. Um, let's go to a break. Welcome back to The Rest is History. So this probably, Tom, will be one of the last Rest is History episodes we record, because after this, we will be leaving podcasting to concentrate on, a, on the blind people. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, to leave listeners, um, leave them something to remember us by, by telling us about your top Londoner. Well, so I may have mentioned this before, Dominic. I live in Brixton yeah. in South London. So I wanted to choose someone who lives in Brixton. So Brixton's actually had quite a lot of famous people who've lived in it. So David Bowie, of course. Yep. Uh, John Major. <laughs> um, Two very different men. Uh, Ken Livingston. Yeah. Clive Dunn, who was Corporal Jones in Dan's, Dad's Army. Army. Yeah, so, mean nothing. Most of these people mean absolutely nothing no. to every season. Well, David Bowie would. I'm sure yeah, most was, people have heard John Major. And everyone's heard of John Prime Major. Minister. Yeah. Top Brixton-born Prime Minister. So in London, there's this thing where you have blue plaques which mark the houses of where famous people lived. And there are three blue plaques in Brixton. So one of them is Dan Lino, uh, who's a right. musical artist. Yes, musical. Very famous. Uh, who um, Peter Sellers believed was communicating with him sort of psychically. through the ether, psychically. He would yeah. occasionally, when people would offer Peter Sellers a part, you know, do you want to play Inspector Clouseau again? He would turn and he'd mutter over his shoulder and he'd say, what do you think, Dan? Do you think I should do it? So Dan Eno is still with us. Uh, and Peter Ackroyd wrote a novel. Um, and the Lionhouse Dan. Gollum. Yeah. So there's obviously a kind of faint hint of the supernatural around him. That's exciting. Uh, and then there's Havelock Ellis, who lived on a house at Brixton Hill, which is where I live, who was, oh. um, he was a sexologist. 
I was just about to say he was a sexologist, but I don't know anything about him other than that word. Well, he was he was a pioneering sexologist. What did he do? Hello, I'm a sexologist. <laughs> so, well, that, there's another Netflix series, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're absolutely on fire today. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he was a pioneering he was a pioneering sexologist. Um, and then the third one uh, is the man that I have chosen, who is C.L.R. James. Oh, that's a good choice. And C.L.R. James, um, well, you'd like him because he, he's a Marxist. Of course. Um, he, yeah. He's actually a Trotskyist. He's a big, big fan of Trotsky. But the reason I like him is that he uh, obsessed about cricket and wrote um, a book called Beyond the Boundary, which is widely held to be uh, not just the best book on cricket, but one of the best books on sport ever written. Um, and he ended up in Brixton. He lived there for the last years of his life, um, but he was actually born in Trinidad. He lived most of his life outside London, but I don't think that that makes him any less legitimate as a, a choice for a Londoner because, um, well, you were talking about with Fielding coming from Somerset. Yeah. London has always been a place that a- attracts people who live outside London. And actually... You know, for most of London's history, it was that that fueled it, inevitably fueled its growth because more people would die. You know, it was such a kind of lethal place that you needed people yeah. to arrive to keep the population stable, let alone yeah. grow. Uh, that that wasn't the case, obviously, by the twentieth century. But but London, I guess, for people growing up in the Caribbean, I mean, as we know from the Windrush, um, yeah. people and and lots of people. Um, Lots of people coming to London from the Caribbean, they would, um, they'd be processed in Clapham and Brixton was the nearest area to Clapham where there was affordable housing. Yeah, because Brixton was slightly, slightly run down, wasn't it? Down a hill. And that's why cheap housing. So that's why in the years after the Second World War. So Brixton was a place where that was associated with musical. And, and, and that's why Dan Lino lived there. And that's actually why John Major's father lived there, because John Major's yeah. father w- operate, lived in, um, in Brixton. The- um, and because they were actors, musicians, all that kind of stuff, they tended to live in, in fairly grotty housing because they didn't get much money. Um, and so that's why people from the Caribbean were able to, to move in there. So John Major has a history of cricket. So it does. It's very Brixton good. It's very cricket. good. And there's also he's also written a history of the musical. And at the beginning of his history of the musical, there's a bit where his dad is. So John Major's father was quite old when he had him. And John Major's describing his father in sort of post-war Britain, I don't know, in the 50s, 60s or something. Um, he's dying basically in some boarding house, in some upstairs room in a boarding house. And John Major says, this succession of very old and very strange people trooping <laughs> up the stairs. Mm. And they were all people who had been acrobats, yeah. conjurers and stuff yeah. in the 1890s or something, coming up to say their farewells to John Major's father. Extraordinary scene. Well, it's, Brixton's still got that, you know, it's still a, a place full of clubs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so it's still it's still very much an entertainment centre. Um, but James is actually born quite a long time before people start coming, uh, before the wind rush, before people start coming to London from um, from the Caribbean. So he's born in 1901 in Trinidad. He is um, kind of lower middle class, but very, very bright. Um, so he wins a scholarship to Queen's Royal College, which is um, a very good school. Um, he's highly intellectual, but he's also very, very good at sport. So um, he is—he uh, actually holds the um, the record for the high jump in Trinidad. I think to this day, two or three years. No, two or three years. But I mean, he is a record breaker. Um, but cricket is his main sport. Absolutely loves it. Um, and he's he's almost good enough to kind of break into the into uh, 
you know, first class cricket, but not quite. But right. he's very good friends with a cricketer who is a man called Leary Constantine, who um, great West plays Indian for the West Indies, yeah. great West Indies cricketer, and who gets um, an offer to go and play in the Lancashire Leagues. And the Lancashire Leagues are kind of very, very tough cricket. Um, professional so he goes to um uh, to live in a place called nelson in lancashire and james goes with him um and james by this point is very very um very very into marxism very into cricket so he sets up as a a cricket correspondent stroke marxist (laughs) which is you know (laughs) there haven't been many of those um so he he takes a lot a lot of boxes um, so he, he covers cricket in the summer and he hangs out with Marxist circles, Trotskyite circles. Um, and he ends up writing a, a very, a book that's still very, very famous, very, uh, lots of, you know, incredibly readable, uh, on the black, called the black Jacobins. Um, so that's about Toussaint Louverture, isn't it? Yeah, and, the, and, and Haiti and, the, yeah. and the, the, the revolution in Haiti. And that's sort of the definitive or for many for decades, it was the absolutely, yeah definitive account of the Haitian revolution and of the sort of, yeah, yeah, that, that, that Toussaint Louverture and that, all that sort of stuff. Well, it's a brilliant work of scholarship. It obviously comes from a position of, it it has a kind of real moral force, kind of real blaze of, of intellectual fire to it. Uh, But it's just incredibly readable, really readable. Um, And actually um, James had written a play on the same theme um, in which uh, Paul Robeson was in it. Paul, Paul Robeson starred. Oh, so, um, so it was a, it was a, a, a theme he was very interested in for obvious reasons. And then in 1938, he leaves Britain. He goes on a kind of speaking tour around the United States. And while he's in the United States, he pops over the border to Mexico, where he meets Trotsky. So he hangs out with Trotsky. Um, and he also meets Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. So he's kind of hanging out in, you know, in these circles. He's surely not talking to them about cricket. Well, I always wondered, did he talk to Trotsky about cricket? I mean, it's such a kind of tantalizing idea <laughs> you should write a play about it or something. that'd be good wouldn't it kind of tom stoppard type or play. indeed a, a netflix uh a netflix serial no i think it's more kind of stoppard play at the national it is it's at the royal court diego rivera frida carlo trotsky and clr james and it's all themed around cricket that'd yeah. be good anyway so he's so he's in america but he is obviously um not the kind of guy that in post-war america the authorities are particularly keen on yeah um, and so they managed to expel him on a charge that he's kind of, you know, visa problems, that kind of thing. So James, uh, he comes back to London. Uh, then he goes to Trinidad, gets so back home. Uh, and that's where he writes Beyond a Boundary, his, his great masterpiece. So uh, Beyond a in- Boundary, which I've never read. Tell me what's so great about Beyond the Boundary. Because it is seen as one of the absolutely great books about sport. So it's a book about cricket, but it has the theme, what do they of cricket know who only cricket know? Yeah. Um, so it, it is also very much about the relationship of the Caribbean to Britain. It's about um, the way that empire works. It's it's essentially, I mean, it's, it's one of the great works of um, post-colonial literature. And James is to Britain what Frantz Fanon is to France. I remember when I read it when I was when I was kind of 15 or something and was terribly struck about how Marxist it was and how how edgy and daring. Then I read it again a few years ago. And what struck me was how incredibly conservative it is, actually, especially compared to Fanon. I mean, he's all, you know, Fanon is is, still seems unbelievably radical. 
Whereas mm. James is actually, it's all about <laughs> WG Grace and how much right. he loves Trollope and things like that. Right. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, he, James was a genuine, you know, he was a genuinely radical. He was a Trotskyite. Of course he was. One of the things I think that makes Beyond the Boundary great as a work of literature is that it's not just agitprop. There's a real tension there. Yeah. You know, he hate, there's so much about the British Empire that he hates, but he also kind of loves it. He loves cricket. Well, he loves the, he loves the great yeah. literature and yeah. he loves England. And he, you know, he, he is the one who really enshrines grace as a, 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 a distinctively Victorian hero. One who, who, who's not, who, who's idolized by the Victorians, but who also challenges a lot about what we, we would think conventionally the Victorian age is about. So it's a very, very rich book, very complex book, very, very subtle book and, and very um, fascinating as a self-portrait as well. Cause James is not a modest man. It's, be fair right. to say i mean he has a very very kind of robust sense of his own worth and yeah. that's also part of the kind of the drama of what he's writing about and he writes about constantine as well because constantine went you know goes on to become he he serves in the british government during the war he gets uh, a peerage i think he becomes the first he's the first black peer um so so james is you know i mean he's he's at the heart of quite seismic events yeah and so James, is he in Brixton at this point when he's... No. So he's in Trinidad, but he gets expelled. In fact, briefly he gets imprisoned and then he, get, he gets expelled. So he comes back to London. Now, where's he going to go? So by this point, Brixton has become the, the kind of the capital of black Britain. Yeah. Um, and one of the guys who is kind of the leading figure uh, in kind of intellectual circles in Brixton is C.L.R. James's nephew, who's a man I'm sure you've heard of, Darkus Howe. Of course, Starkus Howe. Very, very yes. kind of impressive man. And he was he was still, when I moved to Brixton, you'd see him occasionally on the tube. Um, he, he was very impressive looking man and, and kind of incredible baritone voice. Uh, and very, very smart. And he... He in he he got his he got his um his uncle to come and live in Brixton. So um and Darkus Howe is in Brixton because he is the editor of a magazine called Race Today which uh, had been founded in the 70s and I think originally had, it, it had been in Notting Hill and originally had been um, very much focused on decolonization in Africa, so particularly uh, concerned with um, apartheid in South Africa and things like that. But then increasingly through the 70s had become interested in the way that immigrants from the, the Commonwealth in Britain, so not just from the Caribbean, but from India and Pakistan and so on, how they were, what, 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 how they were settling into Britain and what their what their relationship to Britain should be and could be, yeah. um, and Darkus Howe becomes the editor of this magazine, and he moves it to Brixton, and he moves it to one six five Railton Road, and Railton Road, in the nineteen eighty one riots which erupt, um, black people in Brixton against the police, yeah, uh, and it's the totemic riot of. of 1981 the whole of brixton goes up in flames front line isn't it the front and railton road is is called the front line yes so it's the kind of the center of the rioting so 165 railton road you know it's it's a a potent place for a magazine devoted to issues of of race and uh questioning the fabrics of the british state and all that kind of stuff and clr james comes and he he loves it um he, he gives a lecture in in brixton just after the riots and he, he he finds it an exciting place to be, and so he says, "Could, could he stay? You know, he's looking for somewhere to live." And so he moves in. Correct. He's in his eighties at this point. He moves into his into the very small flat directly above the offices of Race Today on Relton Road, um, and so that's where that's where he stays. 
um, for the rest of the 80s because he died yeah. at the end of the 80s didn't he, so he died in, yeah he dies in uh, the end of the 80s 89 um, yeah and and so and um, you know it's a kind of and so i walk past it regularly and i look up and i see the name of this this great man up there and it's fantastic but the the other reason i, well, I just wanted to mention him was that um i think that there is also something rather rather wistful about it certainly for me because i i moved to brixton in 92 and the year before that i went to the oval to see the west indies against england and this was the the, the famous match where both of them failed to get his leg over oh, yeah. precipitated um Brian Johnson and Jonathan Agnew, they kind of corpsed. Um, and that was the match where Viv Richards, the great uh, West Indies batsman, played, who actually had a kind of a, a bearing and a sense of dignity rather like Darkus Howe, actually. Um, and great bowlers like Courtney Walsh, uh, Kirtley Ambrose. So it was a very, very powerful team. England actually won that match, but um, which maybe served as a kind of signal that, that West Indies cricket was a... West Indies had had been the great power in cricket throughout the eighties, and perhaps this was a kind of a presentiment of the fact that cricket in in the Caribbean was about to go into decline. But it was the Oval was absolutely heaving with people who'd come up from Brixton. It yeah. was a, a kind of I should think about half England supporters, half West Indies supporters. It was a really, really kind of exciting, thrilling, pollulating sporting occasion, and it made me think Brixton might be a kind of great place to live because it, you know, loads of cricket fans. <laughs> so we moved there the next year, but but since then, cricket in the in the Caribbean has really gone into decline, and definitely cricket in in Brixton is a dead thing now. You know, it's it's not really followed at all, partly because the only cricket ground in the whole of Lambeth the borough of Lambeth which Brixton is in is the Oval you know there's no other cricket ground and the facilities are terrible there are there are are cricket nets in Brockwell Park which are in a terrible state of disrepair there's just no there are no facilities um I mean it's not completely dead so you've got Ebony Rainford Brent who's a um from Brixton who played in the England women's team so she's kind of very prominent uh voice in in contemporary English cricket but uh, aside from that it's it's really faded and so I when I see CLR James's uh, name on that blue plaque, it, it does make me slightly sad and wistful as well. So, um, so that's why I chose him. Okay. Well, you've been listening to the rest is cricket with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. About that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Tom, that's a good choice because CLR James is absolutely um, the fact that he's not born in London and he comes as an, as an immigrant, as a Caribbean immigrant, is is part of a wider story, isn't it? But also, yeah, definitely, yeah. he is he is probably the Titanic figure in 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 that sort of tradition of it's a traditional kind of post-colonial writing, but it's also that very, very, I mean, the contrast with Fanon, um, a, a French writer or a French influence writer probably wouldn't start look to, 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 to wrap it around the subject of cricket, would they? Patonk. They would start with some, <laughs> ab- yeah, well, they wouldn't Ooh. do a Patonk. They would do it with a series of abstract nouns about Liberty or something. Fanon is as French, is French in the way that the CLR James is British. Yeah. I mean, they, they both absolutely bear the stamp of the empires to, into which they were born. Yeah. But I think that James's relationship to British culture is much more conflicted than Fanon's was, I think. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll definitely be back tomorrow with another podcast about a walk, because we've done the walk, haven't we? It was a walk yeah. around Smithfield and about the history of kind of medieval, early modern London. Very exciting walk that we did. Uh, at the point at which we were doing that walk, my new shoes, which were inappropriate for the walk, because I was going to a function. <laughs> Blood was spurting out through the leather. I was in. I was in absolute agony. So as Tom, <laughs> and was, I say, come on, yeah. 
you'll hear Tom talking a lot and you won't hear anything from me, but the odd kind of muffled groan. Uh, now, but actually, Dominic, you mentioned um, Dr. Johnson investigating ghosts. We have yeah. the Cock Lane ghost, so we, we go past. We Cock will Lane. be talking about ghosts tomorrow, yes. Now, there may be a podcast on Friday. If there isn't, it's because we're working on the Blind Beak with Netflix. But if that <laughs> doesn't work out, we will be back on Friday with a podcast about moments from London's history. Yeah. In fact, pardon me, Tom, because our moments are so good, I almost want the Netflix series not to work out. Well, so maybe, we see. who knows? There's a real element of tension and jeopardy in the next few days as you wait to discover whether the rest of history has come to an end and whether the blind beak has got the green light. <laughs> and if it doesn't, what events we've chosen. Yeah, and so we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.